The reading is from Revelation chapter 3. It's page 1235. And we begin at verse 7. <clears throat> this is addressed to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now to the church of Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold, refined in the fire, so that you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so that you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes, so that you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, 
just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Let us pray. Lord, we ask that you will open our ears, that we may hear what the Spirit says to the churches and what he says to us today. Amen. Well, it's three days before Christmas Eve, and probably most of us can't get Christmas out of our heads at the moment. It's the one thing everybody's thinking about and preparing for. Will we be ready? In actual fact, this season of Advent is not just about getting ready for Christmas, even though the preparations for Christmas have got earlier and earlier every year. In fact, preparing for Christmas is about preparing for a coming, an Advent, which happened 2,000 years ago, long gone. And what we're preparing to do is to celebrate again that wonderful event of Christ being born. But the coming we really need to be ready for is still in the future, and it's Jesus' return, sometimes referred to as his second coming, though that's not actually quite right, as we shall discover. And the book of Revelation, which we've been looking at for our series on the letters to the churches, is all about being ready for this other advent and what it means for us today. It starts in the first chapter with the clarion call, Look, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. And the book ends with the promise, Yes, I am coming soon. And the responding cry, Amen, come Lord Jesus. And five of the seven letters we've been looking at contain the words, I will come, or I am coming soon. Each church is being urged to get rid of those things which are offensive to Christ, or to cling on to what is true, or to endure times of hardship and persecution so that they may be ready to meet the Lord when he comes. And today we're still being urged to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches and to be ready to meet the Lord. We've seen the letters to the churches in Revelation have messages for us as well. If you recall, we've looked at Ephesus, an orthodox church, teaching correct doctrine, but sadly showing little love in its fellowship. We've looked at Pergamum, a confused church which tolerated conflicting teachings and was intellectually challenged by the pagan culture around it. We've looked at Smyrna, a poor church suffering bitter persecution, but spiritually rich and exhorted to be faithful even to the point of death. We've looked at Sardis, 
a church living easily in the world, but morally lax and spiritually dead. And we've looked at Thyatira, a compromised church, tolerating a poison within which was setting up false idols against the Lordship of Christ. Now today we come sixthly to Philadelphia, where the church was witnessing in a city with a strongly Hellenistic culture and a Greek name meaning brotherly love. The promotion of the Greek way of life in Philadelphia was so dominant that anyone who dissented from it was ostracized. It was a prosperous wine-growing region where the principal temple was dedicated to Dionysus, the god of wine. Even though the name of the town meant brotherly love, Philadelphia was not a place where those who didn't conform were tolerated. I guess the church here wasn't persecuted in a violent way, like the one at Smyrna, but social pressure was exerted against those who didn't fit in with the rest of the community. Now, it's quite easy to draw a parallel with our culture in Britain today. Modern secular humanism is the equivalent of rational Greek philosophy. Indeed, it sprang out of it. And a hedonistic lifestyle, including a lot of binge drinking, is the modern worship of the god Dionysus. As in Philadelphia, there's a clear clash today between Christian values and modern secular ones. And the predictable tendency is that the church, if it remains true to Jesus Christ, will encounter increasing hostility. Of course, we do live in Britain in a tolerant, inclusive society. We can be thankful for freedom to worship and practice our beliefs. By comparison with Christians in other parts of the world, it's far-fetched to suggest that we are persecuted in this country. Nevertheless, there is a pressure to conform. Socially acceptable standards of morality are changing the whole time. And some church members argue that we must move with the times. But we need to think that through because it sounds as if we're supposed to abandon our own values and go with the world. Of course, I don't mean the church should never change anything. For example, the announcement this week of the first woman to be appointed a bishop in the Church of England uh, doesn't seem to me to have created, been either a betrayal of Christ or undermined the gospel, in fact, rather the reverse. So that's the kind of change which uh, I find fully agreeable to the beliefs we profess. But that's not the entire picture. There are many other ways in which it's easy to see that uh, churches and even individual Christians are now experiencing more and more open attacks on their beliefs. So then, in this situation, let us ask, what did Christ have to say to the church in Philadelphia? He commended its members because though they were weak, they had kept his word and hadn't denied his name. He said he set before them an open door, which no one could shut. 
Some have understood that to mean that uh, it's an opportunity for evangelism. But uh, there's no indication that's correct. And indeed, the church seems to have been in a community hardened against the gospel. The true meaning of opening the door is clear if we look at the words which immediately follow the letters to the seven churches. At the beginning of chapter 4 of Revelation, we read, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. It was the door into heaven which was open to these believers. Philadelphia is the only church, along with Smyrna, which isn't rebuked for its failures in its witness and fellowship. The Christians there were promised the door in heaven was open for them, and they would be received into the new Jerusalem, which was coming down out of heaven. This picture of the new Jerusalem is a picture of the new community which God is making in Christ, the fellowship of true believers, those who have endured patiently. To this struggling church of Philadelphia, the Lord says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Now, there's some encouragement here for us following the warning we got from Martin a fortnight ago when we were looking at the church in Sardis as a dying church. And he pointed out this is a future which could so easily await us in Britain. Here, on the other hand, is Philadelphia, struggling like us against the tide race of non-Christian values. Hold on, says the Lord, I am coming soon. And what he is doing is making a better community than the one in Philadelphia or the one in Britain today. Of course, I don't mean to say that there aren't good things in our present society, such as concern for the vulnerable, though we don't care enough to spend much public money on those who look after the disabled and the elderly. However, the gods which our times most adore are those of commercialism and fashion. Nothing is too sacred to be enlisted in support of selling a product. But the truth is, Satan always overreaches himself. The veneer of civilized values is easily scratched. And I think many people were absolutely appalled at the sight on Black Friday of crowds shoving and grabbing and tussling over what? Were they starving people fighting over some food handout? They were not. They were dupes who had been persuaded they needed some bauble of modern life, such as an extra television set. Against that greedy consumerism of Black Friday, we're called to hold out the sacrificial love of Good Friday, when on the cross Christ gave his all for our forgiveness and redemption. What other values can match that? What else in the end will satisfy the longings of the human heart? This is a message of salvation for humanity in every age. And our task today is to show its relevance without at the same time adopting the assumptions of our secular age. And so now finally to the church at Laodicea, which everyone knows was the lukewarm church. Of course, it's an image of food. 
If you go into a restaurant, look at the menu, you may see an offer of hot dishes and offer of cold dishes. But I've never seen a menu which advertised lukewarm dishes. The very idea is repulsive. Who wants to eat lukewarm food? And that's what God thought of this church in Laodicea. A lukewarm church. To outward appearances flourishing in an affluent society full of professional people, bankers, lawyers and medics. The place was one of the richest commercial centers in the ancient world with a large cloth manufacturing industry. We know from the end of Paul's letter to Colossians that his companion Epaphras had worked hard at Laodicea to build up the church and Paul himself wrote them a letter which we no longer possess. But the plain fact is that by the time this other letter in the book of Revelation was written to Laodicea, the Christian church there had become comfortable and proud of its reputation for being successful, telling itself, I'm rich and I do not need a thing. The authorities there allowed both Jews and Christians to practice their faith without imposing emperor worship or observance of pagan festivals. Feeling secure, the church had grown slack and was blind to its spiritual poverty. Why didn't these Christians in Laodicea realize their true situation? They said the right words, they did the right things, they got on with everyone, and they thought they were fine. But they were no more than a social club. Christ says to this church, here I am standing at the door knocking. The appalling fact about the church at Laodicea was that Christ had been left outside knocking to be let in. This door mentioned in this letter is different from the door into heaven in the letter to Philadelphia. That door could only be opened and shut by Christ. This is the door into the church which had been closed to Christ. But he continues to knock. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Here's the heart of the message to Laodicea and to all the churches. Each one of us, each individual here, whoever we are, can open a door and let Christ in. We often speak about people coming to Christ, but there's a still greater truth, which is that Christ comes to us. Any one of us can be the means of opening the door and letting Christ into the church. If we hear his knock and open the door of our own hearts. For there isn't just a second coming of Christ. He comes continually to enter and bless his church and people. The first coming to Bethlehem as the infant in the manger was a guarantee that there would be a final coming in glory because it showed us through the birth of the infant Jesus that God was at work in his creation to bring all things to their appointed end. The kingdom of God had come near. This child was to be named Emmanuel, God with us. And in between that first coming and the final coming of Christ 
comes the knock on the door as Christ waits for us to hear and to make our own response. Will he be outside your door this Christmas? Or will you welcome him into the table where he can break bread for you, the bread of life? Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.